The scripture reading this morning comes from Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. We are starting a new sermon series this week. It's pretty exciting. Uh, we are calling it Rooted, uh, and we are walking, we're going to preach through the entire book of Ephesians. So one of the things that we like to do here uh, at the table uh, as we have gotten started is to spend some time looking at different aspects of the Bible. We looked at Jesus and encounters with him for quite a while. We went through our vision, mission, and values. We just wrapped that up last week. We'd love to have you uh, find that sermon series online and to be able to listen to that. That'll give you more information and help you to get us get to know us more, get to know you more, if this is where you call your home as well. Uh, and now we are going to spend some time in Ephesians. So this is going to take us probably just into October, just before the end of the church calendar year, right before the beginning of Advent. And so the word rooted comes from, it is rootedness is one of our values here. Nick preached on that uh, a few weeks ago now. Um, but that comes from Ephesians 3.17. And Paul writes, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ. This is part of our prayer in the church, so that we can be rooted in Christ's love for us, and that that can be an overflow in how we live our life as well. Ephesians is one of these absolutely beautiful books of the Bible. It's probably one of the New Testament letters that, that Paul has written that I'm most familiar with. Took some classes on it, and I've read a few things. I've preached through it before absolutely love Ephesians. When there is something that I don't know, when I'm just kind of like, what am I going to read now? Where, where am I going to spend time in scripture? I usually pull up Ephesians. I love the book of Ephesians, and it's been incredibly well regarded throughout its history, being a part of the canon of the New Testament as well. People, because of its beauty, have called it the Switzerland of the New Testament. They've called it the crown and climax of Pauline theology. One person said it's one of the divinest compositions of man. Few other books of the Bible have had as much influence as Ephesians for shaping the thought of Christians throughout the history of the church. And so I'd encourage you, as we begin to go through this book, I mean, you can read through it. Uh, at a very simple and easy pace. You can read six chapters. You can read a chapter a day. You get a free day in there each week as well, so you can read through it. And we'd love for that to just be a part of what our rhythm here at the table is, reading through Ephesians together on a weekly basis. Ephesians was written by Paul around 60 A.D., he was in prison. Uh, we generally believe that he was in prison uh, in Rome at this time, and he was writing back to churches that he had either been as, uh, part of planting or starting uh, or people that he had uh, deep relationships with. So he wrote it from prison, and it was meant to be a, pa a passed-around letter. So it wasn't just read in the church in Ephesians, but it was passed around that area for people to read. And it became so important that when uh, it was decided to put together uh, a New Testament, how to guide us in our Christian life in the early church, it was included in that. 
It's two concerns, our power and identity. So to whom we belong, to whom we belong, and how does that affect our lives? In other words, it is intensely relational. This is a personal letter that Paul wrote. And it's what does our relationship to God look like? And what does our relationship to others look like, both inside and outside the church? And that's kind of the two halves of the letter that Paul writes as well. And it's also concerned with prayer and worship, even though it's rarely ever mentioned. Paul, throughout, just breaks out into worship, either writing hymns and prayers as he goes, or he is uh, kind of taking on the tradition of the prayers that he has heard and the worship music that he has been uh, using to worship uh, Christ as well. And so large chunks of this letter have been have been just assumed almost even to be hymns and sources which Paul has uh, prayed uh, through. He doesn't just talk about worship, but he does worship as well. One thing that I don't want us to lose sight of, as I said, this is a letter. This is a letter written by a human to another group of humans. So yes, this is divinely inspired, but it's also incredibly personal and it's incredibly relational. And throughout it, Paul's pastoral heart comes through in his prayers for the Ephesians and for all those, including us, that would read this letter. And so this week, as I've been reading through Ephesians and preparing this, I have been praying as well that this book would ground us, that it would root us in Christ's love for one another and those with whom we are in relationship with as well. We, if you're like us, check Redfin or Zillow almost on a daily basis. There, as we walk around this neighborhood, we see new for sale signs going up almost every day, but definitely every week. The house here on the corner uh, that those neighbors there have just left, and we're going to be receiving new neighbors there. And the prices in this neighborhood and all around Denver, as you guys know, as you guys know, uh, are just through the roof. But it's like if we were going to sell at this point, where are we going to even go? We don't want to go to Wichita. We have no desire to move there. Um, so if we were you know, fortunate enough to sell our house, we wouldn't have anywhere to go. We want to stay in Denver. Real estate is all about location, location, location. And so when you begin to, I know, Luke, you've worked in real estate, so maybe you take some issues with that. Saw a question on your face. But generally uh, understood, uh, it's location, location, location. But it goes in, uh, a lot of factors go into what the location of the real estate is. It's you know determined by uh, the community, the neighborhood that you're going to live in, how much land comes with the house, what is the local school, what's development going on, what is the general culture and the amenities, and is there walkability? That's always a big thing uh, in real estate, especially in cities. And I would say location matters also because it determines our relationships. Where we live determines where we're going to send our kids to school. That determines who we're going to hang out with the most. That determines how we're going to spend our time. Does the school need more help than maybe a well-funded or well-involved school? These all things determine how we spend our time, how we spend our energy, how we spend our relationships. Our relationships determine how we live as well. One of the things that we noticed when we first moved here was 
being in this particular neighborhood on the edge of kind of urban Denver moving into suburbia, we move both into the city and out of the city. I think if we were a couple miles north, our life would push more city center. And if we were a couple miles south, our, our life would look more suburban. Being right here, we flow back and forth quite a bit. Where we live determines our relationships. Much in the same way, Paul has a really strong sense of a theology of geography. Where you live matters, and in whom you live matters. Your relationships matter in your Christian life. Paul writes, there are three things that determine our location, three things that determine our relationships. The will of God, our faithfulness in Christ, and the family of God. Our will, the will of God, our faithfulness in Christ, and the family of God. Look at the will of God. Look at verse 1 again. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, by the will of God. When Paul calls himself an apostle, uh, he's referring to someone who's seen the risen Christ, who saw Jesus resurrected, or who someone has been sent out by the church with a missionary task Broadly speaking, an apostle can also refer to anyone who acts as an agent or representative of the church. Paul was all three of these. This is the authority by which Paul writes. He was an apostle. He saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead, and he was sent out as a missionary to be able to start new churches throughout uh, the ancient uh, Roman Empire. He says this is by the will of God. This isn't this predetermined sense of the will of God, but this is an emphasis on God's purpose with his actions for humanity. This basically means God is involved in our lives. Paul is saying God is involved in his call as an apostle. A lot of times as Christians, we kind of debate whether we are living in the will of God as if it's this narrow step-by-step list of everything we have to do and we can't take a wrong step or a wrong turn or any of these things, so we would be outside the will of God. No, this is much deeper actually than that as well as much broader. This is God's desire for our lives and his desire that all people would be in relationship with him. Part of the reason Paul says that he's an apostle by the will of God is it's his own defense of his life. Some people doubted his apostleship for several reasons, but mainly because for a while Paul went around trying to kill Christians. He actually obtained a piece of paper with kind of the license to kill. He was the James Bond of the early church, if you will, or against the early church, to be able to go around and to be able to uh, arrest, to be able to persecute, to be able to kill Christians as he was. Uh, he really did not like what they were having to say. And if you remember, if you're familiar with the story, he was making his way with this letter to the city of Damascus, and he was going to find the Christians and round them up and put them in jail and do things to them after that. And on the way there, he was struck with blindness, and Christ appeared to him at this moment and blinded him so that he would be able to see who Jesus was. Ananias was the disciple whom he met in Damascus and healed his eyes. And from this point forth, he began to, his tune completely changed. And Paul had a real sense of this being a part of his story and a part of his life. And really, this is a major part of his repentance throughout his life as well. 
But it also started to change how he saw. His eyes being blinded to what he was doing as he was killing Christians and persecuting them opened his eyes when Christ blinded him to be able to see what God was doing through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And through God's purposes, through the will of God, Paul became this ambassador of Jesus Christ, no longer a persecutor. This made Paul vastly aware of how God was active in his life and in the lives of those around him. It seems kind of odd to say that we are a people who see God working in all places. A lot of times, a lot of people go through their lives saying they don't see God at all. And how would you be able to see that? He's invisible. It's kind of weird sounding. But when we begin to have a relationship with God, we, we begin to see how he has worked in our lives. And when we encounter him, no matter what, is, if, as, is, if it's as dramatic as Paul did in, on the road to Damascus, or if it's just in our everyday life, we begin to see how he works in our lives. One pastor I had um, started a blog before uh, blogs were a thing, and he called them God sightings. And he would say, where have you seen God working in your life? Let's have our eyes open. Let's be in relationship with him because he is constantly at work in our lives. He is not a God who is far off, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ and then through the power of his Holy Spirit, he is near to us, working, doing his will, drawing us closer in relationship with him. God has desires for this world. God desires that we would be in relationship with him. And so he is in relationship with us. God desires something for your life as well. He wants to be intimately involved in your daily life. The question is, do you want him to be? Maybe you don't. Maybe you'd prefer God stay out of your business. Maybe you'd like to keep your life your own for you to continue to do life on your own, to be able to continue to be the person that determine your own will in your life. But to turn the table, if God was going to be active in your life, what would you want from God? What would you want him to do? I'd implore you to begin asking him that because he does want a relationship with you. He does want to be involved. He does want you to be able to see him, to be near to him, to have this intimacy that Paul had with him as well. What would you want God to do in your life? And to ask you to ask him. Secondly, Paul writes about our faithfulness in Christ, the second important part of our location he says in uh, the second part of verse 1, he says, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul writes to the saints. The saints, this word saints, is often construed in our modern understanding. Paul is not writing them to tell them that they are extra pious people or that they have all things figured out. If you're familiar with like the book of Corinthians, that church was like super messed up. And Paul wrote to them, to the saints in Corinth. And so they didn't have it all figured out. And Paul is not saying that the Ephesians had it all extra figured out as well in their lives or that they lived particularly holy lives. What he's saying is that just as he was appointed to be an apostle, they too have been appointed or chosen to be in relationship with God. This word actually means to be separated to God. 
This original word is set apart ones. The emphasis is not so much on how they live their lives, but on God's action of setting them apart for salvation in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying you have a relationship with Jesus. God in his will calling me as an apostle has called you into relationship as well. And he says are faithful in Christ. Faithful, this word could mean that people have proved themselves to be faithful, to be trustworthy, or it could just be someone who has faith. This is the latter, someone who has made a statement of belief. It's not, again, it's not a performance that they have done. It is trust. And the key phrase here is in Christ. It's one of the most significant points of Paul's writing. It's not merely that their belief is in Christ, which it is, their faith, their trust is in him, but they are located in Christ as well. Positionally, they're located in Christ. Paul uses this through his 13 letters. He uses this phrase in Christ or something similar 164 times. And in the book of Ephesians, he uses it the most out of all letters. Just as he says, you are in Ephesus, that's a position, a geography where the people are. He is saying, you are in Christ. This refers to their redemption. This refers to their salvation. This refers to our union with who Jesus is in God and in his relationship with him. We are found in Christ. I remember uh, living in Costa Rica. I I lived there a few different times, but I lived there for about a year um, in 05 and 06 in the middle of seminary. And having grown up as an American, moving to Costa Rica, I had to learn different customs, different values. A majority of my life changed when I lived there. Instead of eating like cold cereal or bacon and eggs in the morning, I ate rice and beans. Uh, with an egg sometimes, uh, I or I ate bananas that actually tasted like bananas. I rode a bus because I didn't have my own car. I had to rely on other people for transportation. I walked a whole lot. I spoke a whole nother language. It came down to I had to confront people differently in Costa Rica. As an American, I wanted to go and say to the person who had wronged me or whom I had wronged and be very direct with them, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, or why did you do that to me? But you couldn't do that in Costa Rica. It's not how it operated. In fact, you had to go and tell like four different people and it had to work its way around. As an American, that was very upsetting to me that this is how our lives were going to work and how I couldn't just have a direct relationship with someone. It had to go through other people to get there. In meetings, we would set up a meeting and people would come 30 minutes, an hour, even a few hours late because time was a lot more relative there. And for someone who generally likes to get things done, who likes to have a schedule as an American, that was very different. See, even though we are Americans in Christ, even though we've grown up in this culture, the in Christ part should influence our lives a whole lot more than our own national identity. Whether we're American or not, whether we grew up in Colorado, whether we live in Denver or not, the in Christ part should be what determines who we are and how 
we live. See, in the earliest copies of this letter, there's actually an empty space where we read in Ephesus. So there was just this blank space where, as a circular letter, anybody could insert, you know, in Thessalonica, in Denver, in Oklahoma, in Arkansas. You could insert in wherever this letter was being sent around. Scholars believe that this was a circular letter to all the churches near Ephesus. See, being in Christ was a statement that mattered more so than being in Ephesus. It was more important. It was more substantial. It runs deeper. Our identity as Christians as being in Christ should should determine our way of life way more so than where we live. You don't have to conform to this ever-changing, deadening system of values that really every few years is different. What we emphasize, what matters, how we interact with one another, what is good. And this is not a return to the good old days. This is not a nostalgia that we look back to of, you know, the, the music or the culture or having prayer in schools or whatever it is that we often look back for. No, this is a looking forward to Christ's return to when he comes again to when the kingdom of heaven is on when when the kingdom is on earth as it is in heaven being in Christ means being conformed to him and being freed from this totalitarian rule of authorities and values this determines how we spend our time our energy and money it's determined by being in Christ not by living where we live How is your life more in line with the geography of where you live versus the positional of where you live being in Christ? It's not a very clear question. Let me see if I can restate that. How is your life determined? How does being in Christ change the way you see how you live your life even though you're in Denver, even though you live in Colorado, even though um, certain substances are legal, even though there, we have this beautiful access to mountains, even though we have a, an airport nearby us that gets us anywhere we want, what would it mean to be have the value of being in Christ more deeper, more deeper, is that the way you say that? To be more pronounced than having this accessibility to all these other things? How would that change how we work? How would that change how in debt we are? Would that change our image and our identity? Would maybe it allow us to put our facades down, lay our masks down, so that people don't just see our good sides, but they see our brokenness as well? That they would see our need of Jesus, that we would see our need of Jesus, and our need of being in community with others as well. This can be really scary. Like Brendan said, confessing our sins together in a group is not something that we really like doing, but it's something that allows us to be real with one another and to allow Jesus to remind us how close he is, how much he loves us. See, it's with God's grace and peace and remembering that we are in Christ, that we can be our real selves with one another, that we can truly be in community, that we don't have this need to perform anymore, and that God will meet our needs. This is point three, the family of God. In verse two, Paul writes to them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This is Paul's very standard greeting that he writes in almost all his letters, grace and peace. And it reflects the common form of, of the letter in the Roman Empire with a small but significant change. Most letters would start out with, with a simple uh, with simple greeting, the word greetings in Greek. But Paul played off of that word and infused it with significant theological um, meaning by saying grace to you. These very similar words in the original Greek. See, grace is the perimeter in which we live our lives. If we are in Christ, if God is determining who we are and is involved and we can see him active in our lives, we are going to begin to see a whole lot more grace, both our need of grace and how God provides it to to us as well. Peace would have kind of belied Paul's uh, Jewish background as well. This is the word shalom that he would have been referencing. We talked about this last week. It's more than just being at peace. It's more than just battles being, uh, um, our, our arms being laid down and not having, being at war with one another, but it would be this flourishing, this wholeness, this, this fullness of life that we would be able to have. Paul says this comes from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Together, they are the source of grace and peace in uh, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, who Paul really talks about quite a bit through uh, the, in the next passage as well. God works in Jesus Christ. God's grace and peace is personal in Jesus Christ. Those of us who are in Christ find ourselves a part of the family of God, which is characterized by grace and peace. Grace is not an easy concept for us. It's not something that can be earned. It can only be received. But we like things that we can earn. We like things that we can achieve. We like to, to point to things and go, I did that. I made that. I earned it. I built it. I produced that thing. But grace doesn't allow us to do that. Grace can only be given to us, and we can only receive it. But that also means that it can't be taken away. See, we live most of our lives earning and achieving something, either through work, through family relationships. We get a bigger house. We get a better job. We get more pay. But the sad truth is is that if we have to earn something, then it can be taken away from us as well. We have to continue to perform. We have to continue to pay our mortgage, to feed our children, to appease our boss in order to have that thing be with us, whatever it is. And when we achieve something, we are puffed up with pride because we say, look what I've done. Notice me. But grace breaks down this cycle. It breaks down our pride. And it moves us to a humble reliance upon God, which is what brings us peace. It gives us rest. It allows us to retire. It allows us to take a day off. I took two days off this week. I haven't done that since March, uh, since we started public worship. And I don't say that as a boast. I say that as a really a condemnation. I thought I needed to be working more. I thought, well, the kids are in school all five days a week, so I'll just work five days, and I'll work on Sunday as well, and I'll only take Saturday. And i got to tell you, um, I've had so much more peace The last two days, taking a day off, trying to trust, trying, right? Trying to trust God and what he is going to do uh, both today, keeping my kids alive this weekend with Stacey being gone as well. See, the benefit of grace is that once it's given, it can never be taken away. 
I quoted uh, um, Robert Farrar Capon a couple weeks ago. He says, grace works fully and finally from the start. There is no ramping up. There is no turning the volume up on grace. It is there always, as long as we need to avail ourselves of it. Knowing that it can't be taken away, knowing that it won't be taken away, provides us peace in our lives. It allows us to love people more. It allows us to show um, who we are, to let our facades down, to put our masks down finally, to be able to take risks in our relationships as well, to be able to maybe begin to see God at work in our lives also. And no matter what we are facing in our life, no matter what is being threatened of being taken away from us, we know that our relationship with Christ will not be taken away from us. We have to constantly remind us, remind ourselves of this. We forget. We live in a culture. We have been raised in a culture where grace is not a part of it and that peace is actively worked against that um, the, the culture actively works against us having peace. You need to strive more. You need to work harder, which is why I think reading Ephesians, being in it on a regular basis, having God's word infused into us, reaching out to him, asking God for what we want in our lives as well, which is called prayer. This regular inclusion of who he is in our lives allows us to begin to see the grace, to begin to experience the peace that he longs for us in our lives as well. Being in Christ is being a part of this peaceful family of God, a family that you have not earned, but one that has been earned for you, one that has been graced to you, given to you, and cannot be taken away. This is what it means to be rooted in Christ. This is why we're going to spend some time in Ephesians so that this will be the soil that we live in, that we can um, drink deeply from the nourishment that God has for us deep in his grace and his peace. This is being rooted in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that um, that we, we can't point to this and having said that we earned it that we can't point to our own lives and how you love us because it's something that cannot be taken away. You love us deeply. You sent your son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we couldn't live, to die on the cross so that when then, and to be raised from the dead so that we know that we can have new life in you. Lord, be with us. Give us your grace. Give us your peace. Help us to see how you are living, how you are moving, how you are active in our lives as well, Lord. Empower us by the Holy Spirit that may we may see um, who you are and praise you in our lives. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.